Hello and welcome to Scribe to Screen, a podcast about visual adaptations of books from across the ages. I'm Charles and this is the man, Kimberly Chu. <laughs> it's true, I am a civil servant. <laughs> oh no! This week we'll be discussing a niche play from an even more niche playwright neglected by time, Twelfth Night by William Shakespeare. Fortunately, director Andy Fickman Ooh. took pity on this uh, little-known writer and revived his work as the 2006 Oscar-winning epic, She's the Man. <laughs> Who's Shakespeare? <laughs> I don't actually have the copy of the Norton Shakespeare with me, so I'm just going to pretend. Uh, the blurb on the back of my copy of... Charles likes a show of his big book. I didn't realise I was going to go all in with the falling off my chair. He's definitely compensating for something. The blurb on the back of my copy of the very reasonably sized Penguin Classics version of Twelfth Night reads, If music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of it. Separated from a twin brother Sebastian after a shipwreck, Viola disguises herself as a boy to serve the Duke Orsino. Wooing a countess on his behalf, she is stunned to find herself the object of her affections. Amorous intrigues, practical jokes, sexual confusion, and riotous disorder ensue in this lyrical, hugely popular romantic comedy which shows both the delights and the perils of desire. My favourite. <laughs> sure. And here's the film synopsis on IMDb. When her brother decides to ditch for a couple weeks, Viola heads over to his elite boarding school, disguised as him, and proceeds to fall for his school's star soccer player, and soon learns she's not the only one with romantic troubles. Ooh, there are too many ends in that. There are too there many are so ends many in that ends. single sentence. And, yeah, it's this, and it's this, and, you know, it's just so multi-layered, bro. It's like Shrek. Anyway. I need to have layers. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, if we sound a bit off today, that's because this film is trash. Oh, jeez. Uh, so let's talk about our personal relationship with the book and the film. <laughs> Go on, Charles. Go on. Yeah, let, yeah, let's talk about the book. The book, or should we more accurately say... The play. The play's the thing. Hey, we did not plan that. <laughs> yeah, so, oh boy. <laughs> we did not plan that. This is why we're recording this, and we haven't done 50 takes of this already. This highly scripted segment. Oh boy, do we have some memories of the Bard at university. Uh, one of our coursework papers we did, uh, second and final year, was a portfolio of free essays, mm -hmm. all on Shakespeare. And one of them was allowed to be an adaptation. And neither of us actually ended up submitting an essay on Twelfth <laughs> Night. <laughs> I didn't even submit one on adaptation in the end. Charles! To... You're letting the side down, man. I'm letting the side down because I didn't write an essay about Nomeo and Juliet. <laughs> That's right, listeners. I did write an essay on Nomeo and Juliet. I compared it with Tom Stoppard's Shakespeare in Love. So that was an interesting time. <laughs> very proud of it <laughs> i did actually write about bertolt brecht's adaptation of coriolanus this super socialist rewriting of coriolanus but no one wants to hear about that no that's just boring and yeah intellectual <laughs> sorry it's not clickbaity enough <laughs> but in true oxford fashion our tutors would have suffered from aneurysms if we didn't submit an essay every week hey. so we actually ended up writing about eight essays hey. and five of them got the chop 
And one of those essays was the first time where I had read Twelve Nights. We finally got there. And yes, we got there. It's probably my favourite Shakespeare comedy out of the ones that I've watched and or read. Mm-hmm. It's got this weird sense of melancholy pervading the whole thing. It's a Shakespeare play that I feel leans most heavily on punning, although Measure for Measure has a special place in my heart there. And Festy the Clown is an absolute gem. Festy the Clown's pretty fun. I love the drunk knights as well. <laughs> Just more drunk people. Yeah. It's what every play It's could true. Do, that right? was our entire university experience. It was more Shakespeare, more drunk people. <laughs> now I know why academia is the way it is. More Shakespeare, more drunk people, and I'm not gay for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of I'm not gay for sure, <laughs> the film. Had any of us seen the film? No. Um, no. Good. But... Moving on. <laughs> okay, well, I, I read this play for the podcast, actually. I never read Twelfth Night before this. Um, and I'm kind of sad that I never got to see it played because it didn't make much of an impression on me as I was reading it. I think a lot of Shakespeare's comedies are just kind of fine until you see them on stage and then suddenly they're the best thing ever. <laughs> I mean, like, I the first time I really saw anything at the Globe was As You Like It, and I'm like, that's the best play I've ever seen in my yeah. whole life. Although I'm not sure that As You Like It is... I saw that is... production yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. Not, with, not with you, but the same production. I'm not sure that As You Like It is actually as good of a play as Twelfth Night, so I'm just kind of sad that I never got to see it. Because, you know, this film does not count, actually. No, it does not count. A word about the film, I guess, which I, I assume you guys have probably realised we both watched for this podcast and for no other reason. <laughs> what? We... I'll have you know that I am actually the world's leading expert <laughs> on Jesus. early to mid-2000s teen <laughs> comedies. But we chose to do this... We, we chose to do a Shakespearean teen comedy because we were kind of worried about like what it means to do an adaptation of a play. Because I think Charles and I, we both agreed that if they'd just done a film mm. version of Twelfth Night, it wouldn't really have counted as an adaptation as such, because it's just yeah. another performance, yeah. So we really wanted to get something kind of out there, and I was like, let's do 10 Things I Hate About You, and Charles was like, nah, I don't want to have nah. to read The Taming of the Shrew. The Norton Shakespeare, in its bibliography of adaptations, actually lists She's the Man. Oh my god. What? As a recommended reading, yeah. No! No, 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 go back and check it when you have time. <gasps> no! It, it's there. Oh no, you betrayed me. The officially Oxford-sanctioned copy ah. of Shakespeare acknowledges this film's existence. Oh no. And for the life of me, why? <laughs> Alright, that segues very nicely into uh, how was it? How was it? <laughs> so I just kind of slammed my head against the keyboard <laughs> when I was scripting this. Let's, but I might actually uh, attempt to pronounce it. I was gonna say. <laughs> so what's that German for? Interesting. <laughs> it's German for interesting. <laughs> very, very interesting. Yes. Uh, it's not a good film. No. Sorry, I had to be the one to tell you guys. No, no, no. Uh, whether you're a Shakespeare snob or not, we're both pretty open-minded when it comes to adapting the Bard. I'd say we are, yeah. Yeah, Kim Kim likes Romeo and Juliet, for goodness sake. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and Shakespeare's been adapted to death at this point anyway, that he's just fair game. Yeah, yeah. But this film, this film, oh, it scares film. me. It's a shallow, <laughs> boring, unfunny mess. Yeah, I... Okay, I mean, for the record, I like Romeo and Juliet, like, post-ironically. <laughs> I would oh, not straight up hell. recommend it to anybody, so I just need to put that out there before I lose all semblance of credibility. <laughs> but it's at least late. I but I do like Romeo and Juliet because it's fun and this film is not fun 
And Romeo and Juliet, furthermore, is not transphobic as heck and also extremely sexist, which this film is. Uh, you know. Uh... So this film is officially worse than the <laughs> one where, like, James McAvoy plays a garden gnome called Nomeo. <laughs> What are you talking I... about? That's Oscar bait right there. <laughs> I gotta say, anything with James McAvoy in it is automatically, like, worth watching. So, you know, whatever. Correct. Maybe that's why. I wrote here, why would I watch She's a Man when I could just rewatch half of Watchmen again? Which I think... <laughs> oh no, I feel like we're using that joke a bit too early. Uh, it's the adaptation that Crazy Rich Asians deserved. <laughs> and we're using up that joke too early. Oh no, now we can just compare everything to She's the Man. Yeah, we've hit a new low. We're building up the consolidated canon of scribe to screen. Uh, anyway, yes, you had a you had a thesis statement for this adaptation. I did have a thesis statement. Yes. So, with regards to it being an adaptation, yeah, <laughs> in massive air quotes, hmm. this film uses Shakespeare in that it keeps some of the names and thinks it's really funny by doing that. Oh, yes. uh, and it thinks that cross-dressing would be a really funny premise for our high school drama. It's not. Because teens are experiencing changes in their bodies, yo. They're 17. Uh, and that's and that's it. 90% of its humour comes from essentialism. Ugh. And it seems to wear this as a badge of honour. <laughs> like, oh, look how relatable all of this is. Right, girls? Am I right, lads? Uh, <laughs> Hate the to be imprisoned to... in a ball gown by my mother. Honestly, it happens to me all the time. <laughs> the deepest thing it has to say about anything is girls can play football well too. And I'm not really sure that message was worth the trans and homophobia no. constantly falls into. It, it truly, I, yeah. I don't really know where to begin with this film. It's it's a bad movie politically, ethically, artistically, as an adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> the soundtrack's bad. The cinematography's bad. The acting's actually kind of fine. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> so let's just jump in with Let's that get into it. Yeah, yeah. Essentialism then, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> it's obviously the funniest thing in the film because that's all the jokes are. <laughs> God. Yeah, so in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, the comedy comes from dramatic irony, mostly. Mm -hmm. From the fact that to the other characters, Viola is completely convincing as a man. Yeah, yeah. There's not even a hint of doubt that she will be unmasked. It's made even funnier in the context of Shakespeare's theatre because Viola would have been played by a boy actor. Yeah, and it's, it's I think, highly possible that Viola and Sebastian would actually be played by the same actor because they almost never show up in the same scene together. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that juicy contextual nugget. Thank you very much. Yes. In She's the Man, uh -huh. the comedy derives from the fact that Viola uh, is not convincing as a man in the film's essentialist eye <sighs> and that there's actual risk to her being found out. She's the man is way more interested in the hashtag awkward <laughs> moments that arrive from a woman pretending to be a man. And the status quo that you need to subscribe to for these jokes to even work is not really funny at all. It's no, no, it's not. I am so done with gender essentialist humor and, and jokes about how women can't be men and men can't be women. Like aside from the blatant transphobia, that's just kind of insulting to everybody. Yeah. Also like, I, you know, I was here being like, oh, this film is kind of transphobic. Oh, this film is, is really transphobic. And then it ends the film with Sebastian mm. and Viola, quote-unquote, proving their respective genders by um, <clears throat> flashing everybody. In front <laughs> because... of two entire schools and their yeah. families. And their, and their parents and the faculty of their school, which is great. Because gender is biologically yep. determined, obviously, and also um, revealing your private parts to 
200 people is a very good idea and it's gonna have absolutely no consequences for your social well-being or your mental well-being whatsoever you know nope in the future great the headmaster in she's the man really cares about his students social well-being and trauma <laughs> that's my big takeaway he yeah my I'm... favorite character Jeez. I mean, this is just really horrific on its own, um, and I don't think anything more has to be said about it because of how bad it is, but also just, like, it's quite a notable departure from the play in which Viola doesn't have mm-hmm. to do anything to prove that she's a woman. Like, when she when she decides yep. to be a woman again, she's just like, by the way, I'm a girl, let me go put on a dress, and everyone's like, oh, I guess she's a girl, let's see her go <laughs> put on a dress. Like, great. Yeah, they're right over there. And yeah. the play ends before she even has a chance to change her clothes, exactly. so it doesn't even matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a woman, like, she's a man because she says she's a man, and then she's a woman because she says she's a woman. Like, everyone just believes her, you know, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. This film is just obsessed with the inability to pass. There's just, there's like a whole montage early on, which is the first moment where I turned to Charles and went, huh, this film (laughs) might be problematic. We're in for something here. Yeah, yeah. It's really early in the film, and Viola's like getting a makeover, and she's getting lessons on how to act like a man from a friend of hers. And she's, she's so bad at it. Like... I'd say it was comical, but it's not, because it wasn't funny. No. I have here, it makes the bit in Mulan where Mushu is telling her to punch people to say hello look like the height of realism and sobriety. (laughs) And I mean, like, (laughs) you know, there we go. There we go. Yeah. And also just, like, all the constant near-miss gags about, like, oh, the cloth she's using to bind her breasts gets stuck in a filing cabinet. (laughs) Like... She has tampons oh, in her purse and has to lie about sticking them up her nose for nodes bleeds. Ha ha. Jeez. Yep. Yeah. Um. I also think, you know, it's I mean, all the more jarring. I don't know if you'd agree with this. I, I assume you do. By the fact that Viola herself, like, Viola as Viola is quite a... And I put, like, three sets of scare quotes around this. It, she's quite a masculine <laughs> girl to begin with. I mean, like, obviously her defining yeah, features... By the yeah. film's very narrow definition. Yeah. No, exactly, yeah. Like, her defining thing is that she likes to play soccer and doesn't like dresses. Like, that's just a whole a whole deal. And then there's also a scene at, like, a debutante tea where she's just eating a chicken. And it's like, uh... <laughs> the whole chicken. <laughs> she's eating a chicken, like... And I, I wouldn't say she's eating it like a man so much as, like... So you know those people who take masculinity to, like, parodic extremes? Like, they have, like, massive rifles and they wear baseball caps indoors. And they're, like, sitting outside uh, being like... I know these people. I only eat man meat and grilling because I am a man <laughs> and my hobbies are towing manly monster trucks up a dirt hill on a chain <laughs> and grilling hamburgers on a grill when I get to the top and I bathe in Axe body spray instead of water because water is gay <laughs> man yeah <laughs> she eats the chicken like that <laughs> never say man meat again please <laughs> okay oh jeez yeah no I, I mean like what <laughs> I mean, it's not so much that she is masculine as she's, like, performing parodic levels of masculinity as part of her daily, like, apparently her daily life as a woman. And yet, as soon as she, like, tries to quote-unquote be a man, suddenly she's just like, oh, I couldn't possibly walk in a masculine manner. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know how to eat like a dude. I'm like, seriously? What? <laughs> what, is it just, you know, suddenly as soon as she attempts to quote-unquote fake a different gender, like, all those gender expressions that were natural to her suddenly become impossible because she can't yeah. possibly be convincing doing the things she normally does. I almost want to theorize that her character is split between Viola and also the fool. 
because there are parts of it where she forgets that she, you know, is supposed to be passing for a man. And if she doesn't, she will physically not be able to play football because 2006, bruh, like, okay. Mm. She has moments where she doesn't really need to prove anything, but they just, they're there so that she can play around with the men and their ideas of masculinity. So that moment when she shoves tampons up her nose, like it doesn't really achieve anything. (laughs) I don't see how it would dispel the suspicion (laughs) surrounding her, but sure, they buy it. And that scene where she gets all of her friends from her school, parades them through the bar, and then viciously flirts with them to prove her masculinity. It doesn't really achieve anything, except maybe, (laughs) you know, you could ask that, because she shoved tampons up her nose, she now needs to do something to prove like she feels threatened and needs to prove that she's a man. Yeah, yeah. But Aye. I'd almost feel like you'd want to lay low, right? She just... Yeah. All she needs to do is lay low as herself and play some football and she'd get away with it. Yeah. But then if she stays a man, she can't love Duke. Oh, no. <laughs> football Such a or Channing movie. Tatum. <laughs> how do I choose? I, I mean, how many it. bad movies was football in, though? New theory: football is the cause of all bad movies, all bad <laughs> media plots. Okay, but we're not. <laughs> when, I mean, we're not just here to like scream about gender essentialism because we could. We could spend the next two hours just screaming about gender essentialism and how stupid it is. But I mean, I think we have sort of more interesting observations to make, and I, obviously, the first one is I just hope so. like. I mean, I think it's interesting as a marker of how people's conception of gender, or at least certain people's conception of gender in certain spaces, has changed over time. And we're going to get into conceptions of queerness a bit later. But just like the idea that gender was considered a lot more fluid by, I don't know, the mainstream media back in Shakespeare's days, is kind (laughs) of counterintuitive, and yet, like, weirdly seems to be the case, especially when we look at, at things like this. You know, and the idea that, like, the fluidity of gender in Shakespeare's time was considered a massive source of anxiety, and everyone was really scared about what was going to happen when all the women turned into men and all the men turned into women, and, like, is gender even a thing anymore? What? Whereas, like, this anxiety in the modern day, which obviously has still carried on and is still kind of stupid, uh, (laughs) but, like, you know, it expresses itself, at least in 2006, in attempts to just, not not to play with this quote-unquote danger, but to, like, just assume that it doesn't exist. Like, they're just pretending yeah. it doesn't exist so they don't have to think about it. Which I think is quite telling about early 21st century media and 21st century culture. Mm. I mean, we were actually alive um, back yeah. then. And I'm pretty sure I would have felt <laughs> insulted, even as poor, uneducated little boy Charles, <laughs> by this film's brand of humour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, when I say culture, I don't mean, like, everyone believed this or it was even the dominant theory of gender at the time. Just, like, you know the way that it was talked about in some circles, including crappy teen movies. <laughs> yeah. But also just, like, the how gender changes and, like, forces radical changes to the plot, basically. Mm. I mean, like, the film is obsessed with what makes a man and what makes a woman. And, like, unpicking the performance of gender and trying to figure out what can be adopted and what can't. The answer being most things can't. Uh, <laughs> and the play is a lot more focused on what gender does to you and what o- doors gender opens for you. And how, like, a changed performance of gender can affect your place in the world. Yeah, and with Shakespeare, the key word's always going to be performance, because 
yeah. nothing inherent to Viola playing Cesario's gender puts him in a better place to woo Olivia than Orsino, right? It's yeah. actually his youth, his less domineering status as a messenger and his penchant for music, all yeah. those things that makes him a better subject to woo Olivia. Mm. And Orsino does end up saying towards the middle of the play that women cannot love as strongly and passionately as men. There He says, there's no woman's side can bide the beating of so strong a passion as love doth give my heart. But mm. Viola, as Cesario argues, as passionately against this and tries to explain why social expectations of women mean that they don't have the privilege of swooning and making yeah, yeah. grand authoritative displays of love in their big castles. <laughs> you know, she says, we men say more, swear more, but indeed our shows are more than will. In her show, as a man, her rhetoric in this speech, the entire play, yeah. Viola as Cesario has already proven Orsino's claims to be absolute bullshit. <laughs> and Viola as Viola will prove it again at the end of the play when she says that she'll die for her lord if she feels she has betrayed him. And yeah. for Sebastian, her brother. Uh, in the end, it's that passion that wins Orsino over and makes him realise that her love is stronger and more truer than Olivia's, and that they make a better match. Yeah. Bit awkward that this is exactly the kind of service and intensity common to homosocial and servant-master relationships then, huh? Mm. But more on that later. Right, yeah. I mean, like, you know, the, the, the play's focus is on how Viola's different gender expressions allow her to let loose different parts of herself. And it's really, really focused on the consequences of her being perceived as a man and her, the consequences of her being perceived as a woman. Mm. Whereas this film, it glosses over all of that stuff. It's not interested in the consequences of Viola being Sebastian. It's only interested in whether or not Viola's able to keep up that deception. Yeah. It glosses over all the soccer stuff. The romance stuff is more prominent than that, but like it's still de-emphasized heavily. And like actually the main romance plot, you know, that comes out in the film is not anything to do with Viola being mistaken for a man and then being trapped in various situations. It's the fact yeah. that like Duke has varying levels of interest in Viola as Viola and not Viola as Sebastian. And notably, this plot doesn't feature in the play at all. And also, you know, it requires Viola to be presenting as female rather than exploring any of the consequences of her presenting as male. Like, yeah. you'd assume, yeah, that the play, a large part of the play hinges on Viola not being able to express her love for us, you know, because Cesario is a guy. Yeah. Whereas this film is just like, Duke likes Viola. And Sebastian, who's actually Viola, is just like, well, that's not a, you know. <laughs> but I want to play football. Man, but... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But I really want to play but football. But I got other problems. It's, it's just crazy. Also, yeah. this film builds its tension and conflict around the threat of unmasking. Like, you know, especially in the carnival sequence where Viola has to jump through all these hoops to be two people at the same time. Um, mm. Whereas in the play, the unmasking and, like, the revelation of the truth of Sebastian's survival of Viola's gender, um, that is the solution to all the problems, which is, like, a major departure, really. Yeah, yeah. Cesario turning out to be a woman in the play is just the natural resolution to things that have been happening. It's like, oh, of yeah. course I love you because you're a noble woman. Silly yeah, me, yeah, yeah. I would never fall in love with a slave boy. You know, Sebastian <laughs> He was a back. page, he was a... <laughs> no, go on, finish. Cesaro was a page of high birth. 
you know, they used to send, like, nobility used to send their sons out to be page boys for other people. He was not a slave oh, right. boy. Okay. He does make a big point that he has noble blood, though. But yes, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And then Sebastian coming back and being the exact same person as Olivia, but in male form, is just a way to neatly resolve mm. conflicts. Make sure everybody gets paired up and restore the heteronormative order. Yeah. Yeah, and she's the man. It just ends up raising more questions because the real Sebastian is absolutely nothing like Viola in any way. He ends up playing in the soccer game and for whatever reason, he never thinks at any point, oh, this is a bit strange. I've never met these people in my life. I've been in London. <laughs> Suddenly they expect me to be like this master striker in the football squad. Like he just goes along with it, which... <laughs> Yeah, sure, Shakespeare can be convoluted at times, I guess, <laughs> but it just feels more egregious <laughs> here. Yeah, it does, it does. I mean, I just, I think that most of these plot changes, okay, maybe not the stupid bit about how Sebastian just doesn't question <laughs> anything, but like... Why is this girl kissing me? Uh, I'm horny anyway. Most of the other, most of the other changes from the plot are not based on, like, modernization or even the fact that the film is dumb, although the film was exceedingly dumb, <laughs> but it, you know, they come directly from the play's obsession with the essentialness of gender. Mm. The play is convinced of and concerned about the degree to which gender is fluid. The film is not convinced of or concerned about either of those things. The film doesn't believe that gender is fluid, and so it's focused on an entirely different thing. So, I mean, basically, what I think I'm trying to say is that, you know, the gender essentialism of the film is not only terrible and wildly a distortion of the play's... I don't know, I guess, arguably the central theme of the play? Yeah, sure, it is nowadays, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Damn modern critics. (laughs) But, like, it also lies at the root of a lot of the distortions to the play's plot. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, Mm. similarly with the gender fluidity stuff, we're going to have to talk about the looming spectre of gay, (laughs) as Kim has entitled it. (laughs) Oh, was that me? I thought that was you. No, that was absolutely you. You have all the credit. Oh, it was me. All right. Everybody, you can thank me for the section title, The Looming Spectre of Gay. Good job. Uh (laughs) So, yeah. I'm not sure (laughs) I really need to tell anyone this, but Shakespeare's writing in a society where heteronormativity is law and order. Hooray. Even then, Twelfth Night is way more deviant in how it plays with sexuality. And I think this is typified by the ending where Orsino says in the view of the whole court that he loves Viola as Cesario. So, oh, don't rush to go get your women's clothes. If you say, if Cesario says that Cesario is a woman, then, yep. I love them both equally. Yeah. I mean, obviously we're not saying that, like, gay people didn't exist back in the Shakespearean era. Oh, and even, you know, like, there are a lot of um, writings about gay love or queer love of various kinds at the time, but it was far less prominent than it is today. And, like, Shakespeare was writing at a time where it was so easy to pretend that you know, not only that everyone was straight, but that everyone was straight in such a way that they would all end up in heterosexual pairs by the end of the play. That was, like, part of the convention. And that makes the ending of Twelfth Night kind of feel inevitable and therefore, like, fine. Despite the fact that, like, the play itself raises a lot of questions. Yeah. As to why anything works in the end. You know, like, mostly about Olivia, to be honest. Like, why... You know, we can understand why Osino (laughs) and Viola get together, but why in the world does Olivia end up with Sebastian? It's just this, like, farcical thing <laughs> where she just randomly marries a dude and he's like, cool, fine. And then she finds out that her husband is a totally different person and she's like, cool, fine. Ooh, fine. Because uh, they're exactly because the same. Of, yeah. 
Oh, uh, yeah, all right. It's then. okay. But also because because of compulsory heterosexuality and the gravity that it exerts over the play and how, you know, like, we know that everyone has to pair off in the end and there has to be a man and a woman and a man and a woman and that's why we get over it. It's, like, fine. And yet... And yet... Are we going to bring up Antonio and Sebastian? Yes, we are. When we're discussing any kind of evidence of homosociality in Twelfth Night, we're looking at Antonio and Sebastian and how that relationship is mirrored with Viola playing Cesario and Orsino's. Mm. And like Viola, Antonio puts himself at risk for a master's love. He's a wanted man in Orsino's court and rushes to defend Sebastian, who actually turns out to be Viola from (laughs) Sir Andrew, Sir Toby and their officers. When he's caught and he realizes that Viola just looks like Sebastian, he acts like he's been betrayed by a lover he says, oh, this youth that you see here, this is while he's struggling in the police officer's arms. He's like, no, no, you have to understand. I snatched one half out of the jewels of death, relieved him with such sanctity of love and to his image, which before did promise most venerable worth. Did I devotion? And the police officer's just like, yeah, yeah, tell it to the judge. Charles, you're not going to quote the whole thing, are you? Yes, I am, because he keeps going on. He says, how vile an idol proves this god." Thou hast, Sebastian, done good feature shame. In nature, there's no blemish but the mind. And he's just, like, blaming this person for... He's kind of, like, blaming his mind. Like, I'm so devoted to Sebastian that I see his image everywhere. And the fact that this relationship exists is very typical of servant-master relationships in the literature of this time. And that it mirrors Cesario and Orsino's relationship uh, is basically why there exists contemporary discourse um, Twelfth Night and sexuality. I mean, I assume that was because, you know, Viola dresses as a man and therefore... Nah, it's not to do with One that. way or another, all her relationships are gay. Nah, nothing to do with that. What are you I talking mean... about? <laughs> <laughs> Back to the point! Uh... Back to the point. Yeah, so if you needed to, me to explain it to you again, in the year of our Lord 2006, public homosexuality is a lot more common. Who knew? Yeah. She's the man does not even attempt to acknowledge this. So for its piss poor essentialist humor to land, we're left with this bizarro hellscape where high school teens haven't heard of gay before. And it ends up being less true to reality than a Shakespeare play written 500 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I think it's not just, I mean, first of all, to point out when you say... 2006, it sounds like a long time ago, but Glee came out in 2009. And I'm not saying that Glee is a great example of representation, because Glee is not a great example of anything other than really good covers of songs. Uh, (laughs) But but it is, it was known as the gayest show on television, I think. You know, that's three years later. Gosh. Um, I mean, okay, so, you know, how I mentioned that, like, the play relies a lot on compulsory heterosexuality and on compulsory heterosexual marriage or desire to justify its ending, which is kind of weird in the context of the rest of the play. The film tries to do the same plot, and instead of attempting to justify its ending, which it very easily could do, it decides to just keep the ending as as weird as it is in the play, and, and in order to try and force it to feel justice justified, it attempts to pretend that gayness is not a thing. 
which is odd considering that Paul Antonio, uh, Viola's friend in the film, is actually gay, according to Wikipedia, at least. Uh, I mean, that's never confirmed, but like, that's, no, that's one confirmed. of the things that I want to mention that we're going to be talking about later. I mean, basically, the idea is that, you know, homosexuality specifically, since transness is obviously dealt with in other ways, um, but like, it haunts the text in the same way that it haunts Twelfth Night, but like, a lot more. Yeah. Because while it was reasonable for Shakespeare at the time to just be like, yeah, you know, he was a boy, she was a girl, <laughs> you can't do that anymore in the 21st century. And clearly the filmmakers were aware of this because they keep trying to, like, excise the queerness yeah. by repeatedly bringing it up and then resolutely ignoring it as if it were, like... And going, ha, 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 we're funny, right? Exactly. No, no, I mean, it's not just that they make it into a joke, though. It's like, if they, if they pretend, like, if they bring up gayness... And then they just go, well, it's not there. I don't see it. I do not see anything. All of us will go, yes. oh, yes, gay people don't exist. I agree. We don't see it either. Which is just so yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, the headmaster. Yeah. I mean, why does no mm. one suspect that Viola as Sebastian might be gay? Kim, you just ruined the plot of She's the Man for me. <laughs> oh, I boy. mean, yeah, everybody at school thought I was. <laughs> and I didn't even write poetry. <laughs> To be fair, neither hell? does Viola or Sebastian, but, like, you know. Even aside from their failure to pass, like, the film goes out of the way to make Viola as Sebastian seem really effeminate and, like, teases her attraction to men. There's a scene where she's, like, striding across the field in full view of the headmaster and other students, asking her mother on the phone about her high heels. And there's just, like, a <laughs> comedy beat, like, bum And yet, and, you know, and, like, when she when she's talking to Olivia and Olivia's like, oh, I'm really into you, and Viola's like, oh, you're not my type. In, like, a really very skeevy... Like, not skeevy, sorry, a really shifty and, like, significantly <laughs> dodgy way. Like, like you know, yeah. there's a lot of things that she could be saying there, but isn't. I'm just like, why does yeah. nobody think that, that, that Sebastian is gay? Because... <laughs> why? That is what Viola has just said to save her image. I mean, exactly. Take it, take the bait, Olivia. Yeah, and I mean, like, there's there's other bits where, like, like you mentioned Paul Antonio and how he is clearly the stereotype of flamboyant gay men, and yet, like, we yeah. never get any kind of recognition that that's the case. And in fact, weirdly, he spends the whole film, like, with two girls, like, one girl on either arm, and you're like, hmm, are they just oh, his well, friends, or, like... Yeah, he's, he's like the gay best friend stereotype. Yeah. And of course, he's the one who knows all the makeup and... Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I feel kind of weird about Viola's actual school friends in general because it's really confusing to keep track of them. I mean, Paul is the one who's in the montage making her up into Sebastian. Yeah. But we don't spend very long at her school at all. And that makes it really weird for me to picture how she acts at school. So I can only assume it's very similar to how she actually acts as sebastian besides all the ridiculous oh shit, i need to pass so therefore i'm gonna say a load of really stupid stuff <laughs> i mean i boys I, it, might you know, say who i've never met i've never met boys that there's anything in sebastian's character that is not that because you know, <laughs> you know but like <laughs> okay so you've got other things like you know the male headmaster hits on violet sebastian in a way that is so stereotypically, like, gay predator, which is just kind of offensive just by itself. Yeah. And then as he's, like, doing this long, really involved thing, he, he goes, oh, take it from me. 
chicks dig that? Because, you know, obviously, obviously this, like, flamboyantly gay predatory stereotype of a man likes yeah. women. So he can't be gay, yeah. right? Right? It's like, oh, f- oh, thank God, I thought he was gay for a second. Yeah, because, like, gay people don't exist, I assume. If this man Jeez. isn't, then who is in this nightmare world that we're living in? Yeah. And, like, finally, there's also, you know, there's a scene where Duke and Violet and Sebastian, they are hugging and cowering on Duke's bed because there's a spider on the floor. And it's just, like, <laughs> it it's so dumb and uncomfortable in a way that, like, mirrors every gross no-homo teen movie scene ever. It's just, like, you know, that scene where, like, the two dudes sitting in a hot tub six feet apart because they're not gay end up, like, clinging to each gay. other. And everyone's like, oh, lol, funny how these two dudes are clinging to each other because they're not gay. <laughs> they just said they weren't going to do that. <laughs> Remember, boys, arachnophobia is not a valid fear, and it definitely doesn't excuse being gay. Oh, boy. I mean, you expect this to be some kind of gay scare thing, which, like, I'm not... By the way, I'm not saying that that would have been good, because that's that sucks, but, like, that's the expectation. And yet, even the possibility <laughs> that that's, like, a thing is never mentioned or addressed in any way, and that scene is just never mentioned ever again. And I'm just like, yeah. you know... The film is trying to pull off this romance plot that is full of holes once you recognize that queerness is a thing. Queerness of any kind is a thing, and especially homosexual desire, or, you know, bi people being into someone of the same gender, or, you know, the fact that men and women specifically don't have to pair off all the time, even if they're both straight. (laughs) And, like, you know, it puts... and, And that is trying to be done in a new context in which all of these things are, if not accepted, at least widely discussed and, like, acknowledged. And instead of just changing yeah. the plot or hoping that nobody notices, it tries to create a parallel universe where, where none of those things are true, despite all evidence yeah. to the contrary. And it feels even shadier because the actors in the film are way older. They're like in their 20s. Yeah. And they're playing high school teenagers. Yeah. But it's not entirely far-fetched to imagine the audience, the intended audience of She's the Man being much younger than that. Uh-huh. We're not talking like five-year-olds whose brains are so malleable we can just feed them gender stereotypes and be like, ha ha ha, this is what gender is. But, you know, they're still pretty impressionable. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I mean, in Shakespeare, men and women do have to pair off a publicly sanctioned ending, but that doesn't mean we can't play with the liminality of gender and sexuality in the context of the court along the way and yeah. leave some nice juicy questions dangling at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to our TED Talk. No, we're not done with the TED Talk. The TED Talk goes on. The TED Talk goes on. To a section yep. terribly intense. You know what, Charles? You should, do the, you should do the headings next time because my only good one was the looming spectre of gay. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're being pretty direct with this analysis anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It fits the mood. <laughs> All right, this section is just called Why is it that Shakespeare is actually better at writing romantic relationships than these goons? <laughs> You know, besides the fact that white dudes with glasses and lots of books behind them have told you so. Charles, you're talking about yourself. I say as I sit a white man with glasses, uh, not in my own room, but if I were in my own room, I'd have loads of books, trust me. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm not a huge fan of Shakespeare's romances in general. I think they tend to coast a lot on the gravity of heterosexual pairing off. And also, I guess, you know, like, on the quality of performance between the two actors. And this is especially the case in the comedies, I think, because in the tragedies, if there is a romance, it's mostly about, like, people dying. And that's always (laughs) compelling. Hell yeah. I mean, I do love Hamlet and Ophelia's whole dynamic, but you don't really buy that as a romance, you know what I mean? 
yeah. Uh, but this film somehow seems to... You don't need to, because to... they're all going to die. Yeah, basically. This film somehow seems to make every problem that this play has with creating convincing romance and just, like, takes it and makes it so much worse, and I don't understand why. I mean, you know, in the play, mm. Orsino and Cesario don't have a super developed relationship, but we understand the basic appeal. Like, you, you described earlier, you know, Cesario likes Orsino, uh, Cesario likes Orsino for, for some some reason. I can only assume that Orsino's really hot. <laughs> uh, but we know that <laughs> He's Orsino... played by Channing Tatum. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> No, okay, but we know that Asino likes Cesario because Cesario is honest and loyal and clever and devoted. And, like, you know, that makes sense. Fair enough. Yeah, and for uh, musical ability. Yeah. Which arouses him and is the food of love. Which is is kind of gay. No, I mean, Cesario likes Orsino for the same reason that Antonio likes Sebastian. And at some point, presumably realizes that her assumed role of uh, gay choir boy servant mirrors... (laughs) exactly how she wants to love Orsino as a woman. <laughs> okay. Right? That that was a sentence. Okay, yeah, but like but, she likes she likes me. her place in Orsino's court and likes Orsino and would like to be married to him. I mean that's that's that makes sense, you know? Yeah. yeah. Sebastian and Olivia is even more tenuous. It's not even at that level of like, yeah, okay. But you know, you do have like as Charles keeps saying, you know, Violet and Sebastian have basically the same personality. Which I don't think is yeah. proven that well, but there are hints towards it, so fair enough. Uh, but also because, yeah. like, Cesario and Sebastian look basically identical, and Cesario's really hot, and Olivia's really horny is basically the main reason. <laughs> My brother <laughs> has died, but I'm now horny. Yes. I mean, yeah. You know, if I were writing a film adaptation, I would lean into both of these things. I would I would flesh out the relationship between, I, I guess in this case, Duke and Olivia. Uh, sorry, Duke and yes. Viola. And have them spend some time together and, like, really get to know each other. And maybe even have it be a thing where, much like in the play, Duke says things to Viola as Sebastian that he would never have said to a woman because he doesn't have the yeah. capacity to open himself up to a woman yet. And and that's how they connect with each other. Like, something like that, you know? And they'd also lead into the fact that Viola and Sebastian have very similar personalities and very similar looks. And that Olivia is extremely, extremely horny. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it reflects on Olivia as well, because she then feels she needs to play a stereotypically feminine role, which is not like her normally, yeah. uh, so as not to arouse suspicion that she is also Sebastian. But then yeah. both her and Duke end up hating that personality, and she learns to just be herself, which is mm. corny as fuck, but it's a much more hey. positive message for a teen movie than whatever the hell this is supposed to be. Mm, yeah. Like, it's valid, yeah, I've worded it really badly and sappily, but yeah, that would be a good positive message. It'd be cute. I mean, it's the football thing that really gets in the way, isn't it? (laughs) It is, it is. How can can there be any kind of bonding when they're football teammates? Everyone knows that sport kills intimacy. It does. Even, well, I mean, especially football, because it's not supposed to be a contact sport, remember? Yeah, exactly. You have you have no you have no sense of camaraderie with your teammates at all. You don't feel any sense of closeness to them. You don't. There's no trust developed. None of that. There's no I mean... steamy showering after a game either. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, in this case, there really isn't any. You know, for no, the obvious reasons. For the but obvious yeah. Reason. Yeah. I mean, against all all sanity and logic, the film tries to reverse the reasons why Olivia and I guess in this case Duke are attracted to their respective siblings 
Yes. And in this case, Duke <laughs> likes Viola because she's hot, which, like, is not bad per se, but it is a massive waste of the fact that you spend nearly two hours seeing the two of them interact and share a room. I mean, like, yeah, oh my god, characters. they were roommates is one of the biggest tropes in romantic fanfiction for a reason. <laughs> it was right there! Exactly. But but just, like, the worst thing is the idea that Olivia likes Viola's personality. Like, as Sebastian, Olivia's like, oh, I like this Sebastian. He's nicer to me than other men. He's not like other men, and he's cool. Which is just, like, the worst possible setup for Olivia and actual Sebastian getting together. Yeah. It's okay, because Sebastian also has those positive qualities that he radiates. Because like he likes playing music which is like poetry i guess so good enough <laughs> uh, right <laughs> uh yeah too bad he's he's nothing like his sister yeah i almost feel like the fact that he is not shipwrecked and presumed dead and the fact that he just irresponsibly plays hooky by flying off to london sets off olivia and sebastian's relationship on a bit of a back foot <laughs> like yeah. Olivia choosing this neglectful douchebag feels like a regression for her <laughs> because it's the opposite of what she learned no, about exactly, her feelings yeah. towards Viola as Sebastian. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, the pairings off are way more uncomfortable than even Shakespeare. Can I just remind everyone that Orsino in Shakespeare is probably, what, like 20, 30 years older than Viola. And this is still worse. Yeah. Also, in Morica, uh, does this actually happen? <laughs> like, the carnival unmasking is an actual pageant where parents Why come to watch their... Why are you asking me? You lived in the States for a while, didn't you? I was fine. Yeah? Did you get kissed by some... I never went some... to a debutante ball. Yeah, did you go to kissing booths and get sold by your parents to... I was there oh, for two years and my parents are Asian. Okay. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Yeah, so... The Carnival Unmasking in She's the Man is an actual pageant where parents come to watch their kids pair off with chads and get their first boners on stage. The writers probably thought they were very clever in doing this, being like, ha-ha, Shakespeare's plays all end so formulaically. Let's make it an actual pageant. But (laughs) it's creepy and weird because in Shakespeare, there's actually an urgency and a necessity to unmask because Mm. there are two Cesarios One of them is going to need to die for taking Olivia away from the Duke because he's a Duke. He can order you to die. And one of them also wounded Sir Andrew in the street. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, yeah. (laughs) At least Olivia and Sebastian had the decency to pair off quickly because Viola and Duke's teen drama drags out for another 10 minutes after the soccer game. And at this point, I was so bored (laughs) and they managed to squeeze one more joke in about a janitor like, Viola comes over this... It's like a golf course? Like, behind... Is it a golf course? I think it's like the golf course behind the manor house or whatever. Zac Efron dances down in the background yes, singing exactly. dead on it. Yes, exactly. Yes! If you see <laughs> High School Musical 2, picture Zac Efron is Viola coming out onto the golf course. And yeah. somebody is standing in the darkness. And, of course, they go, Duke, is that you? And then it turns out to just be the groundskeeper. And they add. <laughs> the, the joke is supposed to be oh, no, it's not you. You're an ugly. Get, you're, get, you're an ugly. <laughs> get back to your job. Which, thanks. Oh, wow. Uh, I... 
<laughs> bit classist, but okay. Okay. <laughs> Why not? And then, of course, Duke turns up afterwards. Yeah. Why? I, it's just, <laughs> Help it's just me, inexplicable. It's a teen comedy. It's not that deep. How are you unable to make a romance work in a teen comedy? Just mm-hmm. lifting directly from the Shakespeare would have been fine. I think you're hot. I think he's hot too. Oh, actually, <laughs> he's a man and you're not. But I'm straight and I'm horny. It's fine. <laughs> but no! But no. There was too much And also, to as a side for. note, like, you know, as much as I go on about the wasted opportunity of having Viola and Duke, like, not bond at all while living together, there's also this whole thing about how, like, I mean, not only does it just not happen, Viola as Sebastian has a really terrible personality. Mm. Like, Viola herself is actually kind of cool. Like, I don't, you know, she eats a chicken kind of weirdly and I don't know what's up with that. But, like, in all the scenes where she's just Viola, she's actually quite a cool person. I can see why people would like her. But Viola as Sebastian is just a freak. He's just this weirdo who, like, makes lots of weirdly sexual comments about women and just degrades women all the time and is, like weirdly obsessed with football and like obviously doing a macho voice and i just have no idea why anyone would want to first of all share space with him at all yeah and secondly like why duke would be interested in viola after realizing that they're the same person i mean i i you know i thought it would be like oh i really like your sister viola she's really hot wait a second you're viola you oh thank you no oh my god that you're a terrible a person yeah yeah but it's supposed to work because We assume that all male characters in this film are like that, are like that kind of douchebag, but they're just categorically not. Yeah. Like, Duke isn't, he's just kind of putting on an act because he feels pressured by society to do so. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. His friend Toby definitely isn't, but that actually turns out to be a bit of a... Worse, as we'll get to. Yeah, a worse source of derision later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But also, I mean, I can only assume that the reason for this, aside from the fact that this film is just bad, which I, th- I you know, we can just, we could just say that this film is just bad and not have to go into it too much. But like, I can only assume also that the reason for this is because aside from its hatred for queerness and the biological essentialism, this film, like, it just cannot handle the idea of male emotional vulnerability or rampant female sexuality. It doesn't yeah. understand that Duke might be attracted to someone for their personality and that like, Olivia might be attracted to somebody because she's horny. Because that's just not funny. Which out Shakespeare's Shakespeare in a really <laughs> bad way. And by which I mean, like, it it creates... It leans so far into the compet that it just, like, nukes the relationships. I don't understand why you do that. I don't get it. No. We may never know. Also, side note, this film isn't very fun, huh? No. <laughs> no. I feel like Kim and I have been spoiled in this regard because we're so middle class. Yeah, we yeah. go to the theatre every single day. Uh, speak for yourself. I live in Singapore now. <laughs> uh. The theatres are closed over here, mate. Oh, yeah. The last two Shakespeare performances I saw before... <laughs> before this. <laughs> before all this. Before She's the Man, which was the best by a mile. Yeah. Where the Bridge Theatre's Midsummer Night's Dream with Gwendolyn Christie... And as you like oh, it at the Globe, that was a good one. the same one that Kim yeah. was talking about, and they were both yeah, I've seen both of those, and they were both phenomenally fun productions, right? 
Oh, it was just amazing. I will never see love on top the same way ever again. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's all Kim needs to say for you to know that they took massive liberties with the script and the music, but they never lost the atmosphere yeah. that makes a Shakespeare comedy fun. At least as yeah, yeah. As far as I, we can imagine what um, the atmosphere would have been phenomenal. like. Yeah, yeah. I was also spoiled more than you actually because Ooh. in the in the intervening period between you and I going to see Midsummer Night's Dream and like this, <laughs> I also got to see a production of um, Much Ado About Nothing in a quite like small theater in in London, and it was just mm-hmm. so good, like just so fun. I love the theater. Give donate to your local <laughs> theater if you have the means. Everybody, they need you. They need your help. Yeah, don't worry. I've got that call to action at the end as well. We're not going to let you forget this, guys. No. Uh, I do remember when we were watching She's the Man. At some point, Kim, I'm calling you out. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kim turned to me and said, hey, these music montages, <laughs> which are really hard to miss because they happen every five seconds. <laughs> they do. Kim turned to me, <laughs> metaphorically on Zoom, and said, hey, at least the music is kind of like the mood of a Shakespeare comedy. <laughs> how it's all musical and carnivalesque. And yeah, yeah. I looked at Kim with just the most baffled <laughs> expression on my face. Like, what? No, no, I'm not even going <laughs> to give it that. Because the great thing about music in Shakespeare's comedies is that, A, it's like folky in a way that everyone can instinctively dance to it. And it's kind of like a break from like the highfalutin noble characters or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that B, yeah. it's almost always diegetic. Like the actors are actually performing it in character and reacting to it as it happens in mm. the world of the play. In the film, its purpose is just to get us from one scene to another and to hide the fact that what's happening is really dull. Really boring. I mean, I, to be fair, like, I think, I disagree that it's always diegetic. In this play it is, though, you're right about that. Like, yeah. the music in, in Twelfth Night is from Twelfth Night. Although, like, I think Globe Productions that I've seen have a lot of non-diegetic dance numbers. Yeah. There was, like, a really... That is added, though, <laughs> Did you right? see the Globe Hamlet? Yeah, 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 it is. Added did you see the Globe Hamlet that came on the same time as the As You Like It? I did not, no. You watched them both back to back. Because it... <laughs> yeah, I did. It was a fun time. I bring up, I bring that up not just to flex on the fact that I've seen so many plays. Ah. I've seen my childhood <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But oh, because, like, dear. the play ends with, with, like, a very somber dance number. Like, there's a musical number at the end of Hamlet where everyone comes back huh. and just, like somberly waves their arms back and forth (laughs) to indicate tragedy. Uh, And even that was more upbeat and lively than these films, than these montages. Ghost dance. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. I I fully agree with you on the montages, actually. I was sort of making a joke there, although that was really (laughs) early on in the film. That was was relatively early on in the film, and I still had a degree of hope that it might turn around and be, like, at least fine. (laughs) We've still Uh, got an hour and a half to go. It can pull it around. Oh God. Um, but I will say that aside from, I mean, I agree with you, but Dirty Little Secret playing during the soccer game where all is revealed is just, it's something. <laughs> it's something. Fine, fine. You get one. You get that one. You know, you know they're, they're playing soccer and then like the music kicks in and I turn to Charles and I'm like, I've heard this before. It's some, it's a song I know. And then suddenly Wait, it's too. like, I'll keep you my dirty little. I'm like, oh God. Yeah. Okay. On the nose. <laughs> Speaking of capturing the essence of a Shakespearean comedy, mm. on to the segment titled The Total Lack of Interest in Shakespeare as an Icon, two question marks. 
these yeah they just these headings yeah. really say what they are on the tin don't they so i i'm baffled by this film on a number of levels as you can probably tell by now what? And one of them, which I know Charles also finds very baffling, is the fact that this film, despite going out of its way to be a Shakespearean adaptation, and despite knowing that they can make a lot of money off pretending to be a Shakespearean adaptation, has little to no interest in mm. Shakespeare. At all. <laughs> this is somehow even worse than Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is somehow even worse than Stanley Kubrick's total lack of interest in The Shining. Partly because The Shining is actually a good movie. This one's for you, Patty. The Shining is a good film. <laughs> and... But partly also because, like, The Shining, the book at the time was not, like, a big thing. And Stanley yeah. Kubrick, I mean, it was a pretty big thing, but it wasn't, like, Shakespeare. And Stanley <laughs> Kubrick was a really, like, respected director already at the time. So Stanley Kubrick's The Shining was more important than, like, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Whereas in this, you know, this film has a similar level of distaste for Shakespeare and just wants to go and do its own thing. And I'm like, you can't do that. You're not Stanley Kubrick. This film has, like, ideas above its station if it wants to hijack Shakespeare and do its own thing, because its own thing sucks. Mm. <laughs> do you know who else has ideas above their station? Malvolio. Uh, but oh not in God. this film. <laughs> because no. the spider is Malvolio, but the guy called Malcolm, like, the really annoying hall monitor Draco Malfoy guy, he's also Malvolio, but <laughs> his surname is Festes, Suggesting that he's the clown, which, to be quite honest, would be an insult to Festy the Clown. It is an insult. H who is anyone? Yeah. These names are so hollow. No, exactly. Like, this film just, it changes characters. Like, removing characters would be one thing, but it smushes them together seemingly at random. Mm. The naming is weird because, like, they just change people's names. Like, why is Malcolm Malvolio? And he has a spider called Malvolio. But, yeah. like,. Olivia's just Olivia. And Viola's, Viola's just Viola. Viola. Duke's... I mean, Duke Duke as Duke is quite funny. Because okay, Chads do have names like that. That mm. did make me chuckle. For some reason, Viola's male persona isn't called Cesario. Like, there is no Cesario in this movie, which is kind of unfortunate. Antonio is just his surname. It's Paul. Yeah. yeah. Why is Antonio now called... Like, Antonio is a perfectly normal name. Why is he now called Paul... Why is he Viola's friend and not Sebastian's friend? Because this Why? is Morica, goddammit. This is the case. <laughs> this is Morica, and Antonio is clearly Italian, and there are no Italians in America. There are no Italians in America. <laughs> <laughs> was that supposed to be kids in America, or what? Am I missing something? No, it was cats. There are no cats in right. America. And, oh, okay. Wait, have you... No, I've never seen American cats. <laughs> There are no Italians in America, and the streets are paved with footballs. Anyway. <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. Why did they use that musical know. number in the film? <laughs> they couldn't get the rights. <laughs> they are not interested in the least in the words of the play, which I find kind of... Why? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not like they... You know, the, the play starts with, if music be the food of love, play on. The film starts with, oh my god, the coach cut our soccer team? <laughs> and that's after five minutes of build-up from a beach volleyball montage yeah. as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, I find it odd because I sat thinking about how you would incorporate punning into, yeah. into like a high school drama and thinking about my teen yeah, years. Yeah. And I couldn't get away from the idea that 
puns about dicks would have fit right in <laughs> with a high school drama. Are you kidding me? Like, so many jokes made at my expense in secondary school were puns, misunderstandings, words that you're not supposed to know until you're older. Oh boy. This isn't even to mention the slang that cliquey friendship groups create in high yeah. school. Like, they could have their yeah. own idiolects, like one of them could be speaking purely Shakespearean. It would have been killer. I mean, no, I totally agree. That would have been really cool. I mean, I understand that a modern adaptation... Like a Romeo... Might not, Romeo X yeah. Juliet thing. Yeah, Plus yeah, Juliet, yeah, yeah. Bring me my sword. <laughs> I mean, okay. I mean, I, I understand... <laughs> <laughs> it's a tampon. <laughs> um, I understand Stick that a modern up, adaptation guys. might not want to keep the Shakespearean dialogue. And I don't have a problem with that. I understand that you might want to just go with the teen movie dialogue. I just don't... It doesn't even borrow any phrases. It doesn't keep iconic lines. It doesn't even, like, capture the tone. Mm. And, you know, you think that the cheapest thing to do in a Shakespearean adaptation, even if you're not going to keep the dialogue, is to just, like, fling the lines around and wink. That it only does that once, and oh yeah. boy. Oh boy, is it a once. Yeah, yeah, so Malvolio's... I mean, from the letter that Malvolio gets, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Those lines are a motivational chant that the soccer coach, portrayed by Vinnie Jones, comes up with. You know, it's in the very climax of uh, the soccer game that Duke gets up. He rallies yeah. all of his, as team captain, he rallies all his squaddies and says, Remember what the coach told us? Some are born great, some <laughs> achieve great. <laughs> and I was like, That doesn't even work in the context of the film. In the play, they're no. actually supposed to be like meaningless words. Malvolio's a fool for believing them. Yeah. Which, by the way, it's I no love sense. I love that that iconic line is just dropped as a joke in the play. Shakespeare is cool. Shakespeare is cool. <laughs> yes. But, okay, no, it's just so totally out of context. Right and it's like... <laughs> it's so totally <laughs> out of context and betrays, like, a total lack of understanding of what the line means. And it's not even done in a tongue-in-cheek way. I mean, like, okay, Romeo and Juliet does this all the time. There's, like, a bit where, like... Oh, here we go. The pinnacle of Shakespearean The nurse is a frog is ushering Nomeo out of the garden, like, just trying to get rid of him, and she's like, Good night, sweet prince! <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which, you know... Um, yeah. But, like, it's kind of obvious that they're just having a time of it. Like, they're doing it for the heck of it. They know it's wrong. Like, they know it's wrong, and they think it's hilarious. Yeah. And in this... In this film, it's just like, do do you know that that's not what the line means? Because there's no, like, it's a very weirdly earnest moment, and there's just no sense that there is any any joking happening here, and they just, did they read the play? Did they read the play? Did they play? think that's what it meant? I mean, this isn't even on the only time the film plays with the Shakespearean canon without, like, seemingly realising that it's done that. Mm. There's a scene where, like, Viola or Sebastian, quote-unquote, pretends to be a girl. She's like, oh... I'll pretend to be a girl, so you, Duke, can practice wooing a woman, you know, by wooing me. Mm. Which is, ooh, the tension. Uh, <laughs> mm, that would be good in a play, don't but you think? It would. It would be good in specifically As You Like It. Which <laughs> Did you know we watched As You Like It? Has seen exactly. Um, and yet the film fails to make any kind of nod at all to the idea that it knows that this is actually from a different play and is, is making that joke. And it, like, is... Is it aware of this? Is did anyone making this film know that As You Like It had that scene? Or are they just, did they just come up with it on their own and think it was really clever? I, you know. So you're telling me you're expecting the makers of She's the Man to have read not one, but two Shakespeare <laughs> plays? 
Kim, <laughs> I think you're asking a bit too much of us here. <laughs> I mean, I just think it's sad that you go out of your way to make a Shakespearean adaptation and not only not really bother to adapt the play that you're adapting in any way that respects the play itself or the legend of Shakespeare and the millions of dollars he's going to make. (laughs) (laughs) But like when you actually do make references to those things, you like (laughs) don't even notice. It's kind of sad. William Shakespeare, yeah, yeah. philosopher stone that prints I was gonna adaptation say... money. <laughs> My favorite book about a young wizard, William Shakespeare and the millions of dollars he's going to make you. <laughs> uh, he turns everything he touches to gold. Does that Willie? Ah, uh, let's talk about objects of derision. Yeah, the title's okay. just that. It's just objects of derision. All right, yeah. This is our final <laughs> segment. So. Allow me to explain derision. Mm-hmm. Somebody does something funny. You laugh at them. That concludes my definition of derision. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, objects of derision are people that you're supposed to hate, basically. And it's really interesting, I think, to both of us that the way the film deals with that concept and with those people is just so... It's just so mean. Yeah, it's, it's really so mean. mean-spirited in a way that not even Shakespeare is, towards an actual Puritan, (laughs) which he has contextual motive to hate because they wanted to shut his theatre down and also Mm. destroy any idea of the arts in London. Okay, sure. And the play gives us ample reason to hate Malvolio. He's an arrogant party pooper. If you were around in Shakespeare's day, and I forgive you if you weren't, the allusions to him being a Puritan alone would have drawn groans from the audience. Ugh, Puritans. (laughs) But even then, even then, at the end, Malvolio storms off, swearing revenge on the whole cast, and it's this supposed to be a really bum note to end your comedy on, because Duke Orsino admits that he's been abused and realises that he needs to reconcile with Malvolio because only he knows, for some reason, where Viola's maiden weeds are, where her girl clothes are. Mm-hmm. How does that reconciliation go? Uh, we don't find out. We're left to speculate. Yeah. And we can't outright condemn Malvolio in another way, because Olivia also loves outside her station. It's the opposite way around. It's in a position of power. She's loving somebody of a lower status when she falls for Cesario. Yeah. And Cesario's love for Olivia is treated as a genuine threat, not madness, like Malvolio's is for Olivia. So everyone, in a way, has been abused, much abused tonight, if not to the same extent as Malvolio. Must be that time of year. It's the most wonderful Christmas. Oh, Christmas. It's the most (laughs) wonderful time of the year where we lock up our friends and then give them fake therapy sessions (laughs) to prove that they're actually mad so we can just laugh at them in prison and then maybe get them executed who knows feel cute might get my best friend executed later (laughs) i'm done by the way okay (laughs) so our objects of derision in she's the man the girl with the braces and the glasses of course why Because she's not a Hollywood supermodel? Because she hasn't gone out with or slept with the rest of the school? Whatever the reason, the result is this really shallow character who exists purely to be ugly and the butt of all the attractive people's jokes. 
I love it. Great. Hooray. That's nice. Uh, her name is Eunice, by the way. Yeah. The film wants you to know, yes. Her name is Eunice. She is actually a character because she has an happy cool. ending. Right, Kim? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, oh, jeez. The, the way this film treats Eunice is just despicable. It's just... It's so awful. And it's kind of interesting because, yeah, the play is mean to Malvolio. The mm. people in the play are mean to Malvolio. The play itself is mean to Malvolio. We're supposed to laugh at him. He's supposed to be stupid. But he does get a certain degree of vindication in the end. Even yeah. though we still find his pain funny, it's not funny. And we know that, you know? Whereas Eunice just is mocked roundly for the whole film. And at no point is funny, but this film seems to think it is, which I just don't understand. She's treated as <laughs> disgusting because she... Like, she wears braces. She styles her hair poorly. And she has, like, some social awkwardness. And the film just treats her as this, like, revolting, gross, disgusting person who probably smells and, like, has weird diseases and predatory instincts, probably. It's... I, I don't understand. Probably. Like, why? No, they outright oh, do yeah. give her those. Because Oh, no, why they do not? give those last things. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she ends up being, like, really... Cre- you know, Viola uh, has to go sleep in Eunice's room because... Duke has kicked her out. And, yeah. like, despite being asked, apparently, Eunice does not wake Viola in time for the game because she's watching her sleep. Yikes. Ha, it's funny. Yeah. Because, like, obviously, uh, any ugly woman who feels desire must be a predator because because her desire will never be reciprocated and will always be undesirable, I guess. She will always be Hooray. lacking a phallus. Hooray. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> Where is that from? <laughs> Moving on, Freud. Uh, yeah. Okay. So she gets <laughs> she gets together with the film's one bracket one black character in the end with absolutely no build up. Bracket one. No, no, Kim. I have to correct you there. There was okay. one brackets one line of build up, <laughs> yeah. but you don't want to hear it because mm. it's when Viola takes Eunice on the double date with Duke and Olivia, right? And she does that just so she can third wheel with them just so she can see what yeah, yeah. she doesn't actually like Eunice <laughs> like Eunice are you joking when she does this Toby who is the film's one black character and Duke's friend says something like oh so now we all think Eunice is hot because Sebastian is with her you took the piss out of me before for wanting to ask her out which um I almost feel bad because these are actual conversations that did happen in my secondary school. Like, oh, jeez. No, no, there were girls who were treated like this. Yeah. And it makes me feel bad because it's almost the most naturalistic line in the whole film. Oh, no. And it's still objectifying and gross. Yeah, it is. Uh, to both and I, of them. Like, yeah. I'm not, like, against everybody in the film treating Eunice badly. Like, I think that's a reasonable thing to show in a film about high school students. Yeah. I'm against the film, the fact the film itself seems to think that she deserves it for having braces and being weird. And, you know, like, she and the one black dude get together and they don't interact basically at all in the rest of the movie. So it's not like it's a nice ending. And then they yeah. kiss and the kiss is like it's awkward and physically difficult and it's deliberately gross to look at. Yeah. Which is like 
you know, it's not so much a vindication for Eunice as it is like this sort of weirdly racist thing about how the black guy gets stuck with the disgusting, ugly girl. Yeah, and I hate the fact that we have to say things like that to explain why this is gross because yeah. it sounds f- awful, right? It is. Well, it, it is, is awful. It's because it is awful. It's bad. It's awful. <laughs> you watch this film, it's bad. Don't watch this film. It's it is exactly that. Like yeah, I just don't, believe you know, us, it's bad. This is just <laughs> terrible. I mean, I guess, you know, because Shakespeare is famously fond of fools. Like this is the thing that I really that made me really want to talk about this just cuz mm. like there are lots of fools in Shakespeare, both the cool fools who are, like, actually interesting and nice, or <laughs> if not nice, like, smart, and the, yeah, like, like, idiots who get stepped on a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you get stepped on and kicked around. But, like, you know, even those people who are the butt of everyone's jokes, they either, like, deserve it for character reasons, or tend to be sort of vindicated in the end, at least in a small way. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. so glad you said that, because it's what I was trying to rely on for so long. And I was thinking, yeah. why do these characters suck so much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the commentary on foolishness is one of the things that I like most about Twelfth Night and, well, any of the fools, clown characters in Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, the film really needed more decent fool characters. Uh, yeah, Toby and Andrew, they should have had something fun to do. Even if they were just Probably. chads getting drunk and, like, shotgunning beers. You do that in American high schools, right? No, because the legal drinking age is 21. <laughs> no, 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 that's why they do it. They go and they get somebody else to buy, like, Bud Lights or something, and then <laughs> they shotgun them in a dorm where no one else can see that they're drinking. Bud Lights, and they say Malcolm is dumb. <laughs> somebody made me do that when I went to Williams College. Hey, Williams College. Hope you're listening to this. And, the, yeah, they were not drinking age. I was drinking age in my country, in the Great Britain. Haha. We get to drink at 18. Spiffing. Um, Tally-ho. Uh, c- carrying on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, America. Are you okay? No. <laughs> carrying on. This is a wet fart to end on. <laughs> Any other business? <laughs> Basically, this is what happens when you try and make a shitty 2,000-year-old... 2,000-year-old? A shitty 2,000s comedy. <laughs> it feels it. That has has no interest in anything but stupid laughs. Maybe it's just the fault of the genre. What do you think? No. No. Don't you dare talk about comedy like that, Kim. Okay. I won't have it. Any other business. Or stupid right, rom-coms. Uh, I'm really fascinated, and by fascinated I mean horrified, <laughs> by the films... <laughs> By the film's assertion that maleness is basically just misogyny. I mean, besides, yeah. you know, having to have a dick, because obviously biology is everything, etc., etc. But, like, uh, the scene great. where Viola as Sebastian proves their manliness by being pursued by and treating cruelly various hot women. Mm. You know, and it's not even that, like, disgusting trope of, like, oh, men who are sexually powerful and of many women are, like, better. Because what really sells her whole performance is that she's mean to them. It's yeah. not just that, like that all these women want her, it's that she's just cruel to them, especially to Monique, who, like, she horrifically dumps, and then suddenly everyone's like, oh, that guy, he's the man. <laughs> he's the man, duh. Yeah, everyone in the middle of the pizza parlor just goes, whoa, damn, girl. I mean, damn, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this kind of attitude makes it even more odd when Duke reveals that he does actually have feelings. What? And he doesn't like treating women graphically, as he puts it. You yeah. know, 
I get that gender expectations, especially in high school, are toxic as fuck, but Viola had been around a pretty long time before Duke decides, wait, maybe I don't need to act like a douche around this person. Yeah. And there's nothing actually stopping me from talking to Olivia. I imagine the film thinks it's quite clever at trying to own Shakespeare, showing how convoluted his plots are, but Shakespeare has never really been about the plot. Yeah. I watch Shakespeare for the plot. Yes. <gasps> no. <laughs> yep, I watch Shakespeare for the plot as much as I watch porn. Uh, that's all she's the man is. I, I, I'm what? sorry, what? I mean, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, because that's all the... Oh, shit, that really threw me off. Porn. Uh, yeah, she's the man is all plot and it's bad plot. And it's way more convoluted um, yeah. than Shakespeare. It's things yeah. that happen. Yeah. I mean, also, like, trading on the weird misogyny thing, and this is just totally not even a thing, but, like, there's a bit where, you know how Viola tells everyone that she keeps, oh, you know, that Sebastian has tampons in his bag because they're for nosebleeds, and then yeah. later on, like, Duke puts a tampon up his nose, and Viola's just, like, grossed out by this, Yeah. and, like, really, like, ew, why would you put a tampon up your nose? And I'm like, girl, <laughs> you, you wear tampons. You know people should know that there's nothing inherently disgusting about a clean tampon. Yeah. I mean, it'd be one thing if, like, he'd pulled a tampon out of, you know, that had been used and stuck, stuck it up his nose, which is like, ew. Because menstruation, like, the blood is gross, you yeah. know. Bodily fluids, not great, but... <laughs> Hot take. But, like, a clean, a clean tampon is kept sterile for a reason. It's in a sterile wrapper, and I just... Jeez... <laughs> Lady, you use them. What's your problem? Because she's the man now. <laughs> yeah. Tampons? I hardly know her. <laughs> Was there anything good? Uh. No. Was there? <laughs> yes, yes there was. Me. I'll answer that, Charles. I found the fight between Olivia, Viola, and Monique quite funny because it was just mm. the right level of slapstick violence where everyone gets up at the end and the only scratch on them is that their hair is a bit ruffled, even though they've been, like, flinging each other against toilet seats and against the tile walls. Uh, yeah, I'm not was... a huge fan of that scene, but I can see where you're coming from. <laughs> it, it was it was definitely an escalation from what had been happening earlier. No, you're correct. You're right, you're right. Okay, I, I liked the football coach, I guess. He was kind of fun. <laughs> I mean, like, and I also, you know, he, he was quite respectful and he was what the passes in this film for a feminist ally. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, what passes in this film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he lets Viola keep her shirt on in practice, even though, like, obviously, you know, she's like, I'm allergic to the sun. I have to keep my shirt on because I'm allergic to the sun. And he obviously does not buy this, but, like, he explicitly is like, yeah, we have, we're like fine with making accommodations for disability. So even though I think you're lying to me, it's not my place to say, so go ahead and keep your shirt on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He could stand to ditch like the sissy, you play football like girls approach to coaching. Yeah. But in the end, that's kind of what he does, you know, when he yeah. says, here at Illyria, <laughs> it's not earned at all, but like, yeah, here at Illyria, we have one, count them, one brackets, token girl on our team. We don't judge based on gender. <laughs> but yeah, yeah hooray I mean, for Vinnie yeah. Jones. He has an arc in this. Yay. Good for him. He's cool. He's the only decent person in this film. Yeah. I was like on board with Olivia for a while, and then I was just like off board with Olivia. But the coach <laughs> is nice. Like the coach. 
Mm. Uh, also, Amanda Bynes is great. Like, she's really, really good. Her role is terrible. Uh, <laughs> but she's good. She's good. And they should have had her play Sebastian too. Yep. She should have had her play everyone. Shout outs to Amanda. No hate. It wasn't your fault. You tried. No, it wasn't. Well done, Amanda Bynes. Ugh, let's right. let's conclude this. <laughs> okay. Oh god. How many more Shakespeare plays are left? No. <laughs> no? Okay. No. Twelfth Night, written by some no name literary upstart no one's heard of, is a Shakespearean comedy, alright. It's got all that fun, compulsory heterosexuality, ribaldry, and suspension of disbelief that you like. But dig dig deeper into the language, give yourself over to the madness of the festivities, and you'll find some interesting reflections on love, melancholy, and foolishness, and the performances thereof. Mm. Uh, I seem to come away with some new realisation every time I read this play. I'm kind of gutted I didn't write about it for my uni portfolio now. Sad. <laughs> but this is to say nothing of productions of Twelfth Night, which can get really right. creative with casting, interpretations of the script, and visual humour. So <laughs> if any of this appeals to you, then consider supporting your local theatres. Watch one of their archive plays online, attend some shows as the theatres reopen for... I don't know, in the if UK... If you feel safe and wear a mask. Yeah. If that... you feel safe and wear a mask. If you feel <laughs> safe and wear a mask and don't, like, spit at actors, please. please. <laughs> uh, they would... The theatres would more than appreciate your support at this time. Do it. Yeah. Do yeah, it. do it. She's the Man, directed by Andy Fickman and released in 2006, is a sexist, homophobic, transphobic piece of schlock, Hooray. which is clearly written by a hag, or more likely... Procedurally generated by a neural net fed nothing but terrible teen <laughs> comedies, J.K. Rowling's treat- tweets, and half the Wikipedia page for Twelfth Night. Just the first half, not the second. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a reason the whole thing's on YouTube and hasn't had any copyright strikes against it yet. I mean, not to say that we pirate films on Scribe to Screen, because I would never say such a thing on the air, on record. But just so you know, if you want to watch She's the Man for Free, you yeah. can find the whole thing unedited on youtube and nobody seemingly wants to claim it badly enough to dcma strike it so can't imagine why (laughs) yeah don't watch it please i mean really don't watch it i mean really just don't i would hate to think that among other things scribe to screen's legacy would be that some of you have watched she's the man (laughs) because of us oh my god if you want us to Don't. ever, if you ever want us to shut the channel down, then just comment on one of our posts. Hey, I watched yeah, She's oh. the Man because of you, <laughs> and I will instantly delete it. our entire. It's Poor fine. Thing. There are lots of fantastic productions of Twelfth Night that you could watch. Uh, I'm sure. Why did we choose online. this one again? <laughs> you chose this one, Charles. <laughs> Thank you. I for told you to I wanted to do ten. Thank you for listening to Scribe to Scream. Join us next time as we flex the fact that I have a sibling and that I can read French. Woo! <laughs> I mean, we. Who? No, we, it's yes in French, Kim. Oh! <laughs> uh, I say this, but I actually forgot to script this last part, and that's because I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name. Um, <laughs> ironically, uh... Uh, in fact, my sister has just come home from university, literally in the last few minutes. Uh, can I ask her how you pronounce his name? 
just so I seem smart. Oh my god. And then you can edit it to make it look like I knew the name all along. No, I'm not going smart. to do that. Okay, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, what? I don't know Russian. Yeah, next time we'll be discussing Anton Saint Exupéry. What is that it? Guys. Novel. Yeah, that guy's children's book, philosophical treatise. His book. Anime manga book. Uh, Le Petit Prince, and and Mark Osborne's 2015 adaptation, The Little Prince. Cool. We'd like to thank our patrons, Dr. Faustus. Mimi Byans, Jack Slater, and Claire So. If you want to see more of Kim's work, you can find her on Twitter at, at Kimberly underscore Chew. And you can find her music on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash ChewKN. If you want to see more of Charles's work, you can find him on Twitter at, at AlBritonica, and he writes a blog about game design at www.ludonarrativebritonance.com. Give us money at patreon.com forward slash scribe to screen. We're also on Twitter at at scribe underscore two and on Facebook at at scribe to screen pod. And now we're also on Instagram at scribe to screen. Revolutionary, I know. I've been posting some weird flexes about how big, <laughs> about the Norton Shakespeare's girth, clickbaity <laughs> stuff about my dog, Chester, because he's just so damn photogenic. And the platform is super fun to mess around with and create content on. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, check it out. Follow us. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Merry 12th night. Merry, merry. <laughs> this film's bad, okay. That's how bad it is. <laughs> it drains me of all my inspiration to make silly tags and clips. Uh, yeah, I'm just gonna use this. <laughs> I'm just gonna use this bit. I'm just gonna be like, we didn't think of a tag. And then you're just being like, I got nothing. Yeah. That's how bad this film is.